0: This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Hurley, independent commentary from a California perspective for new voices with a global audience featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 16, episode 11, Control, the Dark History and Troubling Present of Eugenics, talking with author Adam Rutherford. Our guest today is Dr. Adam Rutherford a geneticist, author and broadcaster. He's a frequent contributor to the Guardian and the host of Start the Week on BBC Radio 4. He joins us from his office in London. Hi Adam, and welcome to the show.
1: Hey Jim, how are you doing?
0: Good. Adam, before we launch into your book, please take a few moments and tell us about yourself.
1: So I'm I'm a lecturer at University College London in genetics in society. And that's a relatively new position that we created only in the last uh, year, uh, because I've had a sort of a, quite a weird portmanteau career and, until this point. So I, I actually came to UCL as an undergraduate uh, in 1993, where I studied genetics in, in the Galton Laboratory. And I guess in the conversation, we'll talk about the, the Galton Laboratory and who Francis Galton was uh, more. And Then I went on. So that was evolutionary genetics I was doing. Then, then I went on to do a Ph.D. at Great Ormond Street Hospital, the Institute of Child Health, which is Great Ormond Street is one of the big London hospitals specifically for children. And I was working on the genetics of eye development. So we were looking at genes that are involved in in how the retina develops in utero in mice and in fruit flies and in humans and working with children who had eye defects from from birth. I did that for three or four years and then I decided that I I I wasn't done with research but I was, I think one of the things that a lot of people experience in their PhDs is that there's always someone who's cleverer than you in the lab, mm. uh, there's also always someone who works harder than you and what I discovered that my real expertise was not so much doing the wet work of biology but actually talking about it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I, I loved writing up my thesis which I know, I know most PhD PhDs regard as a As an awful chore but I kind of liked it and and discovered I had a a real interest in science communication so I moved out of formal academia and I went to work for uh, a scientific journal Nature Mm -hmm. which is one of the big two Nature and Science being the big two scientific journals and I did that for for many years 10 years as an editor there but also at the same time started being asked to do radio programs and TV programs. I did a few series for the BBC and so I sort of fell into broadcasting always about science communication and and mostly specializing in in genetics and evolution which are my real areas of expertise. And then I started writing. You know, when you start doing that, people come to you and say, do you want to write a book? And I resisted for ages because writing books, as I'm sure you know, is extremely hard Mm -hmm. and a hateful process. And any writer who says that they love writing is lying. <laughs> so, but eventually, I, I caved in and I did. I actually really enjoyed that process too. It, it is hard work writing books. And and since, and I think my first book was published in about two thousand and thirteen. Mm-hmm. And since then, I've been. I've, I think I've done a book every two years. Always on similar. So it's always biology. It's always evolution related. But my first book was about the origin of life and and genetic engineering in this in the same book. So so the origin of life and the future of life, whether with a sort of framing of that. And then I wrote a book called A Brief History of Everyone Who Ever Lived. And that really sort of set up the rest of my career. Um, and it, it was really, that came out in 2016. And it, it was it was very popular. It was very popular in the States as well. And it was really about using DNA as a historical source. So we just reached this point in history where for the first time, we could get DNA out of old bones. People who'd been dead for thousands or tens of thousands of years, and with our newfound ability in the era, the post-human genome era, newfound ability to understand DNA and interrogate it and understand the relationship between DNA and our behaviour and our physical characteristics of genotype and phenotype, we suddenly had access to this new historical text that is carried in everyone, Mm -hmm. that is carried in every single cell. And historical texts are, you know, the old maxim that history is written by the winners, that is true to a certain extent, but now we have this historical text which is contained by literally everyone, hence the title, A Brief History of Everyone Who Ever Lived. And so within our DNA, we carry the, the, not just the evolution of our species and our family groups and our migration around the world, but also the history of disease and conflict. This, it, was a, it was a lovely, gorgeous book to, to write, and, but and this is setting us up for this this current conversation, in dealing with the history of genetics, which is what some of the chapters were about, talking about the emergence of genetics in the 19th century, in the early 20th century, but also the emergence of modern genetics with the Human Genome Project, I had to deal with the fact that genetics is a subject which has an incredibly pernicious past. In that 17th and 18th century, biology emerged in parallel with scientific racism. And in the late 19th, early 20th century, genetics and other subjects like statistics and psychology emerged uh, in service of the political ideology of eugenics. Now, even more precisely, you mentioned at the beginning, I'm sitting in my office right now, that this building, not this precise office, has been refurbished several times since the late 19th century, early 20th century. But this is the location of really the... the the heartland, the cornerstone of the emergence of eugenics on Gower Street at UCL under the auspices of of a guy called Francis Galton, who was Charles Darwin's half cousin and a brilliant genius, but also a, a massive white supremacist racist, as many people were at that time. But he came up with the idea of eugenics, the application of Darwin's ideas of evolution by Natural selection and by artificial selection and modification with descent and so on and suggested that they should be applied to humans in order to better society so what, what happened and, and we'll, we will that's what control is about and we will mm-hmm. talk about that in, in, in a minute but in terms of my biography there was this convergent evolution <laughs> of all of the channels of my of, of my existence being a geneticist being an evolutionary biologist being mixed race because I am, I am mixed race i'm i'm, I'm anglo guyanese indian if that isn't a, <laughs> uh, a mixed up set for you and then being a historian of science and all of a sudden you know i'm in this place where i've been for 20 years where scientific racism was centered and eugenics was born the next book after that was about the history of scientific racism and the one after that was about the history of eugenics, which is the one we 're talking about right now well so i 've ended up coming back to where I started at UCL and now teaching about the history of the subjects that we learn about scientifically because a big part of my work now is is arguing that scientists should know and own and be honest about our own history, particularly the uh, the very pernicious elements, including scientific racism and eugenics.
0: Well, Adam, you you answered the question that I had queued up here, what inspired you to yeah. write the book about eugenics. So let's launch into the book. The book is divided into two parts. The first part is essentially the history of eugenics. And then the second part, of course, brings us up to current day and whether or not there's such a concept as modern eugenics. So at this point, let me hand off the mic to you and let's, let's develop a conversation around the, uh, around your book.
1: I mean, the reason I structured it in that way is because I think most people, if, if, even if they're aware of the concept of eugenics, most people tend to associate the idea of eugenics with the, the awful acts of the Nazis in, in the Holocaust. And I think a lot of people think of it as a historical idea, a period, a period of history, the first half of the 20th century where the most heinous acts of crimes against humanity were were perpetrated and a big part of that was this idea of purification of, of populations under the auspices of this title this word eugenics
0: now did this flow from origin of the species by charles darwin you mentioned that uh, that galton was was related to charles darwin did eugenics and the the interest in purification of the race and heredity did that largely stem from charles darwin's origin of the species in the mid 1800s
1: right so i'm, I'm going to prefix prefix this 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 answer with with something that i think is really important in being a both a scientist and a historian which i'm, I'm a sort of pseudo historian but a, a science historian by default which is that as a storyteller as someone who writes and tells stories on the radio and on tv One of the things I've always tried to do is swim in the complexity and not try to offer up simple narrative satisfaction, which is what storytelling demands of us. Unfortunately, you know, real history is is not linear and doesn't have these complete neat narratives with beginnings, middles and ends. And I really want to encourage people to think about the complexities of how big ideas such as natural selection or eugenics emerge. So that's the sort of caveat, but I, I do think it's really important because the answer to your question is yes and no and maybe. And that's <laughs> you know, so it's a typically hand-wavy answer that, that scientists often give. Galton was Darwin's half cousin, and he was an established celebrity already by the 1850s. By 1859, when *The Origin of Species* was was published, and he Galton was very enamoured with with his cousins. The first chapter of The Origin of Species, as everyone knows, is not about natural selection, but is about artificial selection. Darwin uses breeding, particularly in pigeons, to demonstrate that species are not I- immutable, that they change over generational time with the application of pressure of selection. Now, in fancy pigeons, it's selection based on you know whether they have big hairy feet or hairy feathery feet. I'd be in real trouble for getting my taxonomy wrong there, (laughs) Uh, or various characteristics that they they were actually using for competitive reasons. In natural selection is uh, characteristics, behaviors, traits that enhance the survival of of that individual. But that first chapter is about artificial selection. And Galton saw that if humans are biological creatures and, and subject to the auspices of evolution, as as, as was emerging from Darwin's work, then why couldn't we apply the same ideas of agriculture and breeding to humans mm-hmm. in order to change the society, to change the, the, the frequency of desirable characteristics and undesirable characteristics in order to improve society, British society. Now, this is where the story, I think, that, that's, that's a nice, neat, neat answer. The truth of the matter is that this idea is as old as Western culture. And has existed, I think, I mean, in the book, I I tried to document the first examples of eugenics type thinking. And there's very, very clear eugenics thinking throughout pretty much every culture, the oldest of which is arguably is in Plato's Republic, where books five and six describe a sort of utopian society where people are bred together. People are categorized men and women of gold standard, have children together and they produce gold standard children and people of bronze stature are bred together and they have, they have bronze, quality children. Plutarch describes the Spartan practice of chucking deformed babies off Mount Tegatos into the Apopheti, the deposits, whether that happened or not, we don't really know. But Seneca describes it in Rome, that they would kill babies who were deformed, they'd drown them, and that was considered a good thing. So there are examples of eugenics-like thinking throughout the history of pretty much every culture for at least you know several thousand years. Mm-hmm. What happens in the 19th century un- under the shadow of Darwin's understanding of evolution is that Galton, particularly Gal- led by Galton, he-, he says, well, now we've got a mechanism for uh, breeding, for, for selection. And now we understand how evolution actually works. We could actually apply Darwinian thinking to humans. And so there is a, it, in a sense, it's the same idea and it's scientified in, in the late 19th century. So it's an old, old idea with a, a short, formal history. Galton himself comes up with the word eugenics in 1883, meaning what sort of well-born, you, the Greek prefix for good, and genics meaning sort of birth or born or genesis. So it's seen as a positive thing with, with that, with his, with his invention of this formal scientification of an older idea of population improvement, we see the beginnings, the seeds, of what I, I argue in the book will become one of the dominant ideas of, of the 20th century.
0: Of course, UCL, uh, led by Galton, was the was ground zero, if you will, for for the research and for the uh, the academic work that was done in this field in eugenics. But interestingly, it was in the United States where these these theories gained a lot of traction. And in fact, were were actually legislated into law, particularly with regard to reproductive rights and sterilization, whether voluntary or forced sterilization. Why was it so popular and enacted into law in the United States, and less popular? This academic theory less popular in its home country of Britain.
1: Such an interesting question. Then, what what we see over the course of the twentieth century is about thirty countries in the world have. Formal eugenics legislation on their books, so formal enforced sterilization of people either in against their will or against their knowledge, the most enthusiastic I think legitimately could be described as Nazi Germany, but I think America comes a very close second. What you see in in every country that does have eugenics on its on its legislative books is similar but different societal uh, contexts so in all of them it is the imposition of what the reason I call the book control is because it is the imposition of control by ruling parties, ruling, ruling bodies on members of society. It, it, what I think happens in America is is really fascinating. The, the seeds of eugenics are sown before it actually becomes legislation in 1907. I think it's to do with America being a young country uh, at this point, And there's mass migration happening in the late 19th century. And so the, the emergence of ideas of declinism, so the constant threat that other people are coming and will replace the existing population. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I don't have, this, this is speculation on my part, but I wonder whether countries where that has already happened in sort of relatively recent history are more prone to, to being worried about it happening to them, because that is what happens in, in, in the States. With the mass migrations of the late 19th and early 20th century, there is a definite sense amongst the sort of hegemonic power brokers at the top that there are descendants of the enslaved who are now now free, free men, free women. There are, there's mass migration from Italians and Irish and people from all around the world and that they are having more babies than the ruling powers and therefore their reproductive rights should be curtailed. There's also a constant worry about ableism about disabled people with disabilities and inherited uh, or perceived to be inherited diseases being continued in populations on un, unchecked. So the key protagonist in the American story, the Francis Galton for the American eugenics movement is a guy called Charles Davenport, mm-hmm. who was a, a biologist in, in a field very close to my own sort of zoology and developmental biology, went from Chicago to Harvard. Uh, he met Francis Galton in London in the 1890s, and from that point on, dedicated the rest of his life to developing eugenics. formally in the states, he went back back to the states and set up the Eugenics uh, Records Office at Cold Spring Harbor, which is now you know one of the greatest genetics labs on on earth. But from 1907 until it was defunded and effectively closed in 1938, that was the the big both scientific. And and legislation driving sort of eugenics power base for the whole of the states. Over the course of the next few decades, 31 states introduce eugenics laws. And we estimate up to about 70 or 80,000 men and women were sterilized against their will as part of United States' eugenics policy.
0: And here in California, for instance, we had, of all of the states, uh, 48 states, which it would have been at the time, it's 50 of course today, but 48 states at the time, California had the highest number of forced sterilizations equal to all of the other states put together but let's leave that aside for a minute when davenport comes back to the united states he's then able to enlist the financial contributions of some of the greatest fortunes created in the 19th century during the gilded age the rockefeller foundation andrew carnegie the harriman railway fortune and who was the third one? Uh, Kellogg, of course, and uh, and even yeah. uh, and even Ford, Henry Ford. So there was there was an enormous interest and an actual financial backing from these great fortunes of the late nineteenth century, which were dedicated to eugenics. What do you think was the motivation behind that? A- again, the idea of being replaced and. Perhaps being anti-immigrant is was there something more?
1: I think this is the most fascinating aspect of this whole story. So forgive me if I get a bit enthusiastic here. <laughs> the reason I think this is because when I when I when I lecture about this, I, I I ask people if in the audience if they've read The Great Gatsby, to which the the answer is almost always almost all the audiences have say yes because it is. One of the greatest novels of all time i think it's the the great american novel (laughs) unimpeachably brilliant work of american literature i've read it dozens of times since i was i don't know since i was a teenager because it was a set text when i was when i was at school at what point did i realize that actually the first mention of eugenics in that book is on page about four and that there's a theme of eugenics that runs throughout that book well that was about three years ago and I always ask audiences, you know, who who has recognized that the Great Gatsby is actually about eugenics? And everyone goes, "What?" but it's right there, right at the beginning. Tom Buchanan says, I've read this in a scientific book. He's quoting yes. a fictional book. He says, if we're not careful, the white race will be replaced. And, and, you know, Buchanan is an absolute horror story in that in that book. You know, an obnoxious white supremacist, sort of pseudo fascist. But it's right there. And there's a really specific reason for that, because Scott Fitzgerald was hanging around these people like the, like you mentioned, the, the, the Carnegie's and the Rockefeller's up in up in New York, upstate New York. And I was actually you know involved in introducing Charles Davenport to Mary Harriman, who was the widow of E.L. Harriman, the railway magnate. And she, as you say, became one of the key founder funders. Of the Eugenics Record Office, alongside Carnegie and, and and Rockefeller, why why the interest in this? Well, I, I, that's that's very in some ways. I think you're better pressed to better, better position to answer that. Those guys were were American royalty. You don't have royalty anymore, <laughs> not yes. since whatever happened in the eighteenth century. I don't remember. I, I think we're going to claim you back at some point after the Queen <laughs> goes. See how that goes. Rockefeller in in 1910, 1912, 1913 is the richest man in America. Possibly, by some calculations, the richest American that's ever lived. The power that those guys had was immense. But I think different to the UK, where the sort of wel- welfare state was introduced well, formally in 1948, but th- there was a very clear sense that it was coming. Philanthropy is a, it w- was what these guys, would, was a big part of the output of Rockefeller and Carnegie and those guys. And because eugenics is not considered a toxic thing that it is today, it was successfully and easily folded into the 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 general philanthropy of those those you know major organizations i think henry ford's motivation was was different ford was an extreme racist extreme anti-semite and white supremacist and so his his interest in in eugenics was much more clearly delineated as a a white suprem uh, a a white supremacist ideology is a weird story and i won't go into too much detail because i presume this is a family show but he he did have white supremacist uh, ideologies in in his but he was primarily interested in well the sexual behavior of of white americans and you know much of his fortune that came from inventing bland foods like the cornflake was was subsequently dedicated to the prevention of certain nocturnal activities, particularly teenage boys. I mean, I think it has to be said unsuccessfully for yes. the most part, um, but, but he then plugged a lot of his money into the Race Betterment Foundation at uh, Battle Creek. So, there's a, a, one, so that's, a, that's a different scenario you see in America from in other countries around the world that either did or didn't have or, or sort of toyed with eugenics policies. But in all cases, it is the powerful deciding who gets to reproduce. Mm-hmm. And when you see that, it always starts, you see the same pattern every time it starts off as being a positive idea, which is that we want people to be healthier, to be stronger, to be more intelligent. And remember, this is a time where IQ is beginning to be introduced into everyday society as part of, for example, on Ellis Island, testing immigrants to see if their cognitive abilities, uh, were were deemed problematic or not. But it starts off as being a positive thing. We want to improve society. But as soon as that happens, what follows immediately is people deciding you have to rank people. You have to decide who's better than other people. And it starts off with, well, the, the people with extreme disabilities, That society would be better off without them. And then very quickly, it might great to include people with less extreme disabilities Then it's people with alcoholism or epilepsy or women with menstrual troubles and inevitably it then becomes black people the descendants of the enslaved and the jews or the irish and we see the same pattern every time eugenics is discussed or enacted it starts off saying who do we want to preserve which means that we have to decide who we do not want to survive it ends up in the same place always which is it, everyone everyone is excluded except for us that's a
0: that's a great segue into Germany and 1930s Germany because didn't the National Socialist Party Hitler's Nazi party did they not look to the uh, the u.s experience in and our uh, eugenics laws that had been put into place and by the 1930s were were pretty widespread throughout the United States and some of those decisions had been confirmed even at the Supreme court level did the 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 German Nazi party actually look to the legal structure and the practices, the eugenics practices, that the U.S. had been employing for a good 20 or 30 years and then adopted them for 1930s Germany? And we all know where that led. Ta- talk to me about that part of the experience. Well,
1: this, this, was, this was one of the most shocking things for me. I had a vague idea of this when I started writing the book, but it wasn't something that I'd covered in great depth. Before that in my my teaching and my work. But the link between American eugenics and the, and the Nazi eugenics project, in fact before the Nazi eugenics project, so the Nazis come to power in 1933. But the eugenics eugenics in Germany is really sort of gets going in about 1904. And, and their equivalent of Charles Davenport and Francis Galton is a guy called Alfred Plutz, who Interestingly his his connection with America starts before he was interested in eugenics. He was a socialist in Germany in the 1880s and 90s and he went to work on a collective farm in Iowa. And I'm not please don't judge me on this. I'm not I'm simply reporting what he said. He was so unimpressed by what he regarded as the low quality of the people on this Iowa farm that he returned to Germany and dedicated the rest of his life to the purification of the German people with a, a clear eugenics goal. He met Galton as well in the 1890s and was inspired by, by this sort of totemic leader now and began developing ideas of eugenics in Germany from 1904 onwards. But the connection with America, which is what you're asking about, is, is really quite astonishing. So there's lots of communication between Davenport and plots and, and others in Germany and, and in America in, in, the, in the 10s and the 20s. What one really key part of this story is that in 1920, Charles Davenport's deputy, was a guy called Harry Lachlan. He was a sort of the the eugenics enforcer from the Eugenics Records Office at Gold Spring Harbor. He was aware that many states were introducing new eugenics legislation because they were campaigning for it and trying to normalize eugenics legislation across the states. But by 1919, 1920, Lachlan realized that they were drawing up legislation in an ad hoc way so it was all a bit haphazard. And so he wrote a template legislation, a boilerplate um, eugenics law, so that states could uh, have, a, have a sort of un- unified boilerplate legislation that they could pass much more easily. Okay. That then, then continued in through the 20s. And as... Eugenics is developing in in Germany throughout the twenties and into the thirties, and and then Hitler seizes power in in thirty three. Hit, Hitler is virulently anti-Semitic and and racist, as as is you know well well understood and well known. He was particularly interested in the eugenics policies of the states, mm-hmm. and the connection between the financial connection and the intellectual connection between the American eugenicists and the, the now Nazi eugenicists was was cemented in 1933. One of the first pieces of legislation passed, the first part of what become known as the Nuremberg Laws is passed in June, July, 1933. And it is the first eugenics law in Nazi Germany. And it is a translation of the American Harry lockland's eugenics boilerplate. Hmm. So the, the legal representation of, of eugenics is directly drawn from the American version from 1920. And indeed, there are two eugenic centers in Berlin at at this time filled with mostly German scientists working on things like twin studies. Many of them are anti-Semitic and many of them are not, which is worth talking about in in a minute. But Harry Lachlan's out there as well. Charles Davenport's out there. One of them is funded by the Rockefeller Foundation. Hmm. And that funding continues in Nazi Germany until 1938, when things are very clearly looking like uh, we're, we're heading towards war and the, the actions of the Nazis uh, pre-war in the 30s d- deemed to be deplorable, particularly the expulsion of the Jews. But during the, during the 30s, for, the, for five years of the Nazi of the, of the Third Reich, there is intellectual, legal and scientific influence that is directly coming from the Eugenics Records Office in Cold Spring Harbor. It's a bit of history which is, I, I, don't, I don't think it's well known. Um, and and I f- I find it it's kind of shocked to realize this the the Nazis' clearest influence for their eugenics policies was the U.S. In the Nuremberg trials, yes. they directly cited American influence yes. as being their inspiration.
0: Absolutely, and then of course that taken to its to its most extreme end was the Final Solution and the eradication of whole races of people, the Jews, the Roma. LGBTQ, so it was eugenics gone gone wild.
1: Yeah, I think that's right, and I think it's important to make that distinction that that's the the final solution was not a pure eugenics ideology. the the, the ideology of the Nazis was deranged and in, inconsistent, and it was mostly fueled by a sort of ethno-fascist idea of of Nordic purity, particularly fueled by Hitler's virulent anti-Semitism. Some of the early eugenicists in Germany in the 1920s were not anti-Semitic and actually argued that because of the perceived success in intellectual spheres of particularly Ashkenazi Jews, that Nordic people would be, would be enhanced by breeding, by mating with, with Ashkenazi Jews. But many of them sort of gave that up when Hitler came to power uh, on the pretext that their other eugenics ideas were more likely to be enacted in terms of the purification, particularly of people with mental health problems or, or, or disabilities, that, that they would be enacted if they adopted the anti-Semitism of the Third Reich. The The final solution was not a purely eugenics ideology. It was a deranged, hateful uh, ideology. But eugenics was a, a, a sort of pillar of it. Mm-hmm. It provided a pseudo-scientific framework for the development, the continued development of Oh, that, that ended in the final solution. And that was building from the 1920s onwards. Hitler, Hitler cites Henry Ford as, a, as an influence. Uh, he also cites books by American writers such as Madison Grant. early on in the Third Reich. Madison Grant had written a book in uh, 1918 called The Passing of the Great Race, which is a, a, a sort of wild white supremacist, declinist fantasy where he talks about how the great civilizations of Greece and Rome and Egypt were actually seeded by Nordic people who, who descended from their, their, their woodlands in North Europe <laughs> and then planted these great cultures and then retreated back. I mean, it's, it's absolutely crazy stuff. Fantasy. That, fantasy stuff. He, he argues that Michelangelo and Leonardo, based on their measurements of their skulls in busts, so statues of them, he argues that they were Nordic people as well. It's completely nuts. I mean it's quite uh, entertaining and horrific to read today. That by the way is one of the books that is the that is the fictionalized version in the Great Gatsby that uh, Tom Buchanan is reading, but the first American language book to be translated into German in 1933 after Hitler seizes power in February is The Passing of the Great Race by Madison Grant.
0: Let's move on to the second part of the book that brings us up to today and brings us up to the the genome and gene editing and tell us about that morning in 2018 when your phone was ringing off the hook at six o'clock in the morning announcing the gene editing of those two little twin girls in China
1: that was a strange day for me I can tell you so because I'm a, because I'm a, a broadcaster and I, I present radio programs and I I, I in some ways I'm, I, I sort of represent genetics and evolution uh, to the broader public and in the UK and so i often get asked to comment on stories in the news about about genetics and yeah as you say well this was this was late november uh, 2018 and uh, i woke up and i looked at my phone and i had dozens of messages and that does not happen <laughs> very often yeah. and they were they were from colleagues and friends and journalists asking for my comment on a story that i had no idea about because what had happened overnight in Hong Kong at a conference, a reproductive biology conference um, that I had, that friends and colleagues were out. I knew it was going on because, you know, li- literally people from the same corridor they sit, I'm sitting in that right now were out at this conference. But what had happened is this guy, a, a Chinese researcher called He Jiankui, had announced in one of the early talks, the birth of twin girls that he had genetically modified using CRISPR, this, this new gene editing technology, using the IVF process, he genetically modified, he'd attempted to genetically modify them to introduce a version of a gene called CCR5, doesn't matter, but to introduce a version of this gene which naturally occurs in some people and gives those people immunity to HIV infection. Now, the, the father of the, of the girls was, is, as far as we know, HIV positive, and so he was trying to introduce immunity to, their, to this, this couple's children. Now, for the first sort of few hours that this story had broken, the Chinese press had announced this as one of the greatest breakthroughs in the history of medicine, until they noted that the rest of the world, including me and the the dozens of uh, of anxious journalists who were phoning me and leaving me messages, until they realized that this was actually probably the greatest violation of bioethics uh, and a crime that, is, that has occurred in in, in living memory. He had effectively experimented on human embryos, which is illegal according to international frameworks, which were the results of, which developed out of the Nuremberg trials and, and rules that we have in place to stop human experimentation. Uh, it was experimental because he we know from his own results that he didn't successfully introduce the mutation that, that gives you immunity to, a, to HIV in, infection but it had introduced two new versions that were unknown to science, not naturally occurring, and he'd gone ahead. He'd implanted these two fertilized eggs with these genetic modifications, even though they weren't the ones that he'd intended. He implanted them into the mother, and what he was announcing was the birth of these twins. I think, genuinely, this guy was assuming that he was that Nobel Prizes were gonna follow this. And what actually happened was, Utter dismay, total shock that this had happened. He was tried and spent three years in prison. He's out now and fined. I think it was three hundred thirty thousand yuan. But it sort of kick-started a whole conversation about something that had been looming for a long time, which was the possibility of genetically modifying humans for specific design. And you asked me about the motivation for writing this book. This is actually how I start the book, telling this story mm-hmm. because. In some ways, this is the type of thing that people have been talking about for almost a century in science fiction, and then more realistically in the 80s and 90s when genetic engineering became a, a thing, uh, and then more when CRISPR became a really a, a new and much more easily deployable, and much more accurate form of genetic engineering, and then all of a sudden we're having the same conversations that we were 100 years ago. Is it possible to change society using using breeding so at this point i thought oh okay now now i see you know you know the cliche about history is that if you don't study it you're doomed to repeat it yes well the more you study the history of biology the more you realize that what happens every time is that new technology reinvigorates old ideas
0: is the is the genie out of the bottle with crispr with gene editing we we had this one isolated instance in china where where he he unsuccessfully tried to gene edit these two little girls. But is the genie out of the bottle? I mean, do we, who knows what other Frankenstein type uh, uh, experiments may have been conducted already? Where do we go from here with this new, fascinating, but somewhat ominous technology of gene editing? Well, that is the
1: question, isn't it? And the second half of the the book is is dedicated to really interrogating something which... Is a question that, when I posted it to my my editor, she said, "What really is that really where you want to go with this?" Because what I wanted to do in the second half was ask the question: Would it work? Could it work? Did the Nazis' experiments, which were eugenics, did they work? Yes. And are the new technologies available to us, such as CRISPR gene editing, will they enable the the the, the engineering of society and the genetic modification of humans, as has been speculated in science fiction for? well since brave new world really and films like Gattaca in the 90s which you know always comes up in these discussions and i wanted to do something you know how i mentioned at the beginning how i like to swim in the complexity of how science actually works rather than sort of neat linear narratives i wanted to do something which was to really try and interrogate where we are at currently with our understanding of the human genome and what is available to us with these technologies which are now being deployed illegally and immorally by people like Hei-Zhen Kui. But where are we actually at in, in order to answer the question as you, as you posed it is the genie out of the bottle. And see, the thing is, it's, it, it, it is immensely complicated. And I think one of the things that I, I, I get into is there's a section in the book where I really do get stuck into the, into the weeds about what we do and don't know about how genetics actually works. And I have to apologize before I start that bit section. And I apologize again at the end because You know, this is meant to be a popular science book. I write for a mainstream audience. And what I deliver in those few pages is an advanced second or third year undergraduate course in human genetics. And the uh, the reason I chose to do this was because that is the point. The point is that people like me as a geneticist and science communicator, who really knows much less than people in offices to my left and right, and, and, and geneticists all around the world as well. I know much less about this subject than, than my, my colleagues. But we teach this to undergraduates, and we test them on it. And the answer is that we don't know. We don't really know how human genetics works. We don't really know what editing one gene
0: mm-hmm. what
1: introducing you know, one, one variant of a gene that, that might bestow immunity to HIV. We don't actually know how the genetics of eye color works. And that is the one that we teach to uh, middle grade students um, age 13 or 14. We teach them about Mendelian inheritance, how there's a gene for blue eyes and a gene for brown eyes. And brown is dominant over blue. And if you have two blue copies, you'll have blue eyes. And if you have one brown and one blue, then you have brown, etc. Right. You know, your listeners didn't come here for a high school genetics <laughs> right. lesson. But the fact of the matter is that's not really true. That, you know, I, I always when I teach school kids, I tell them that I say, when it comes to the exam, answer what your textbook said. In a couple of years, you're going to learn that it's not true at all. We don't understand the genetics of eye color, and and I say this with 25 years worth of genetics behind me, having studied this for for you know the best part of, well, the majority of my life, and yet the conversations we have about genetic engineering and designer babies, they all rotate around an idea which is at best decades in the future and possibly, I think, n- never solvable because of the complexities of the human genome. So this isn't to say that we shouldn't be thinking about this. And it isn't to say that the morality of, of, or the philosophy of these types of ideas is something that we should just abandon because the practicalities are just too hard for us to deal with. I just wanted to approach it, not as a ethicist or a philosopher, Uh, Or even as a historian, but as a geneticist, which is what I am, and to say, we need to have a serious conversation about what is actually possible, because you've got a lot of people and companies now setting up businesses which say a thing is possible or selling a thing to punters, which I don't think is possible.
0: Adam, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, can you give us a sense going forward that... Where, we, where we're headed, on the one hand, we have this, this wonderful new technology, CRISPR gene editing, but on the other hand, we also have this dreadful history of eugenics as taken to f- extremes in the 1930s by the Nazis. Can you give us a, a closing, some closing thoughts to, to wrap it all up?
1: I, I think the most important idea in this book, and in, and in fact in much of my work, is that Science is really interesting, i love i, I, I didn 't I didn't become a biologist uh, in order to talk about its pernicious history or to think about its morals or its ethics, but actually, most people get into biology and genetics because it 's by far the most interesting branch of science, and most of my colleagues and most geneticists are fascinating hardworking interesting, nerdy people who tinker away at the problem that they 've set themselves, looking where the research goes. The problem with that is that If we don't don't know our own history, we don't know where these ideas came from, where they developed, where they evolved out of, then we are at risk of of maintaining the the societal inequities and structures which, 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 which developed out of these eras of scientific racism and white supremacy, which is where our fields came from. So one of the things that I want to do is to encourage people who are scientists to think about their own past, but also just to just to to introduce these ideas that the things when you see people talking about genetics on 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 the news or you read about them in books, there is a uh, there is a history behind that, where arguably two of the greatest crimes of modern history, the modern era, being scientific racism or racism more broadly, and and eugenics being a sort of central pillar of, of, of the Third Reich and the Holocaust and a central idea of the 21st, 20th, 20th century, the legacy of those ideas persists in our society today. And if we don't know our history, then we are doomed to repeat them. And we see with Heijang Kui or with genetic engineering or with the talk about um, selective abortions or um, iq testing or polygenic scoring an embryo selection which is now commercially available in the states all of those types of ideas which are enabled by new technology brand new technology are a recapitulation of things that have, have been discussed and in some cases enacted many times over in the 20th century so knowing that history studying it and appreciating where science can be bastardized and abused for political ideology, knowing that history is the best way that we have to inoculate ourselves against it being repeated.
0: Adam, where can my listeners get a copy of the book, Control, The Dark History and Troubling Present of Eugenics? Amazon, I imagine, or any online booksellers?
1: Available where everywhere where books are available. It's published by <laughs> Norton. And the, the, I mean, this is worth mentioning, I think, because it came out in the UK this earlier this year, uh, 2021. Is that year 2022? We're 22. So. Yeah, <laughs> yeah 22. It came out in 2022. But I've rewritten I've significantly rewritten it for the American version, which is why it's, there's a delay. And there's a reason for that because there was some parochial British politics, which I think are not much, uh, not you know, great interest to American readers. But also because the American story is different and involves. Uh, you know, significant players in the history of America, especially the history of the Ivy League universities. And so I've really enhanced the American angle on, on this, on the American version. So, you know, really, really looking forward to hearing what my many American friends and colleagues have to say about this and, and just getting getting that word out there.
0: Well, once again, Adam, I want to thank you very much for joining us today. And for my listeners, who would be interested in following up. You have a weekly radio program on BBC4, Four, Radio 4, titled Start of the Week. And I'm sure that's available online, is it not?
1: And also at this time, I've done, I've done a radio series for the BBC on the history of eugenics where I'm exploring some of the ideas, uh, including The Great Gatsby, which I think is one of the most thrilling aspects of this story. But And, and that is available online as well.
0: Well... Listeners, you heard it directly from our guest, Dr. Adam Rutherford, that you can follow up with his dedicated eugenic series on BBC Radio 4. Once again, Adam, thank you so much for joining us today. And we'll be looking forward to following up with the, uh, the BBC 4 programs.
1: Thanks, Jim. A real pleasure talking to you.
0: My pleasure. And for my listeners, today's episode is number 316, as we continue to mark the second anniversary of our podcast. The San Francisco Experience is featured on 19 platforms, Apple, Spotify, Pandora, Amazon Music, among others, with listeners in 65 countries. This has been the San Francisco Experience with Jim Herlihy, coming to you from San Francisco.